You're listening to That'll Preach. We have an episode today with an interview uh, with Dr. Michael Haken. Dr. Michael Haken is the professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's also the, the uh, director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies. He's written extensively on the subject that we're going to talk about today, the church fathers. So he's written on church history, and uh, he's written really prolifically on that. So we're excited to have you on the show. Thank you for being with us, Michael. I uh, hope you... Yeah, uh, it's great. Great to be with you. Hope to hear some uh, some some powerful insights from from church history. Um, one of the things that intrigued me, and I read your book, Rediscovering the Church Fathers, a few years ago, and it reminds me of a quote, and we, we had talked about this, John Henry Newman, when he says that, you know, to study church history is to cease being Protestant. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I remember hearing that and being like, what is he talking about? But for a lot of, you know, my early years as a Christian, I really didn't delve into church history, certainly church history before the 1500s, before the Reformation. And so I think your work was really instrumental in bringing sort of an evangelical perspective on the church fathers. Um, and so with that in mind, can you give us a little bit of background on your own personal journey? How, how did you get interested in studying the church fathers? Uh, what motivated you? How did you get first get introduced to them? What was that like? Yeah, I mean, Probably, in one sense, it goes all the way back to when I was a child. Um, some of my earliest memories have to do with uh, reading Greco-Roman stuff. Um, and by the time I was seven or eight, I was reading a child's version of the Iliad, which became a, a much-loved book. And um, one of my very early memories, when I was probably about five, uh, grew up in England and the there was no kindergarten in those days. So you started what is the equivalent of grade one. And our teacher must have been having us do some drawings. And I remember tracing um, a statue of Augustus Caesar, a very familiar statue. And that's my kind of earliest memory of just a love for the ancient world and late antiquity, antiquity rather. And so when I was converted and began to think about the possibility of um, an area of church history to study, uh, it was natural that I would be drawn to the patristic period because of that love for Greco-Roman culture, um, interest in Greco-Roman stuff, be it, you know, the sort of stuff that you find in the Iliad, all the way over to the civil wars that led to the end of the Republic, the founding of the empire, those sorts of things um, had prepared the groundwork for a, a deep interest in, in the patristic world. So you studied the patristics, and somehow you're still a Protestant. So uh, what do you think about Newman's famous comment? Do you think that, that, what are your thoughts on saying that studying church history, you know, you cease to be Protestant? Well, he, he obviously um, is casting back to the idea which becomes a, a pretty important idea for the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th century, that the Roman Church is the 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 heir of the apostles. But my response is on two levels. Number one, why, if I'm going to go back into church history, do I have to become Roman Catholic? Why not Eastern Orthodox, who make a similar claim? Or why not the Church of the East, who uh, break with uh, Eastern Orthodoxy the Eastern Orthodox churches in the early 500, 400s, um, or why not the Ethiopic Orthodox Church? 
Um, I think I think Newman is blinded by the fact that he, you know, for him there was only two options: Protestantism or Roman Catholicism. And yet there are, if if you're going to take his argument at face value, you really you really have to uh, be prepared to 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 defend Rome against, you know, Eastern Orthodoxy, the Church of the East, uh, Ethiopic uh, Christianity, etc. Secondly, um, I think it betrays a limited understanding of the uh, Protestant founders, men like uh, Cramner, Thomas Cramner, or John Jewell, um, or John Calvin, um, or Martin Butzer. Um, these men were deeply immersed in the fathers. They read the fathers, and what they saw was actually that the church of their day, which uh, is cemented in stone, so to speak, by the Council of Trent, which is what Newman inherits, um, the church of their day was actually the departure. And so if you're going to be deep in history, um, you're not going to end up as a Roman Catholic. So what's amazing to me is how people who can argue that Roman Catholicism is the true heir of the apostolic era, um, and yet you go back to the third, fourth, second, third, and fourth centuries, and the the Mariology uh, that is uh, specific to or a characteristic mark of the Roman Church after the Reformation is not there. Um, the Eucharistic theology is not there, um, and on and on and on. Now Newman has an argument for this: the, the whole idea of seed. Um, the, the seeds are planted and they bear fruit um, and the whole concept of development. He has a whole book on that, um, which I spent a year working through. Um, and um, the problem with his argument is that things like the development of the understanding of who Mary is and the role that she plays in salvation history has no has no has virtually no seeds in the New Testament. And the development that you find in the early years is fleshing out what is already there in seed form very clearly in the New Testament. I'm thinking here of things like the Trinity um, and Christology. So um, to be deep in history means to become Roman. Uh, I don't think so. And if that were the case, Cramner, Calvin, um, Butzer would never have left, would never have left the Roman Church. But what they saw in the early centuries, but it was something quite, quite different from what was evident in the late medieval period. It's a great point. We often forget about the Eastern Orthodox when we just mm-hmm. really think about in terms of the Protestant and Catholic polemics against one another. The Eastern Orthodox were the first to split. And in some ways, you could even say that maybe that was a larger split. I mean, that was a massive schism within the church. Well, yeah, be- before that, you actually do have the Church of the East in the That's early right. You were century. mentioning that. I got yeah, you. So, yeah. yeah. So the tradition game, I always think the Baptists, you know, the Presbyterians look down on the Baptists for not caring about their tradition. The Anglicans look down on the Presbyterians. The Catholics look down on the Anglicans. And I guess the Eastern, or- Eastern Orthodox, maybe they look down on the Catholics. It's kind of this endless regression of who's more ancient. And uh, it's an interesting point with the with the Eastern Orthodox. Maybe you could open us up a little bit. Uh, help us understand who the church fathers were. When we say the church fathers, who are we in general talking about? 
Well, we're talking about those authors who are theologically orthodox, broadly speaking, um, who live between roughly 100. And then the question is, when do you end that? Um, for some authors, it's Augustine, um, Gregory the Great, Augustine dying in 430, Gregory in the 590s. I tend to take it to the uh, to the uh, early eighth century. Bede, uh, I would see as the last of the fathers in the in the West. Uh, Gregory, uh, John of Damascus, the last of the fathers in the East. I, I think the the patristic period, as we call it, uh, only ceases to be um, a viable epoch with the advent of Islam. Islam mm -hmm. disrupts the whole geographical. Uh, contours of early Christianity. In, in early Christianity, it, the, the axis, as it were, on which the church turns is an east-west axis, the or a west-east axis. The gospel beginning in Jerusalem going east, sorry, the gospel beginning in Jerusalem going west into the Roman world, or going east uh, along the Silk Road uh, into Asia, um, Afghanistan, even down into the Indian subcontinent. And even ultimately, as far as uh, Asia itself, uh, China rather, and Mongolia, um, all that gets disrupted by Islam. Um, with the with the massive military conquests that Islam makes in the seventh and eighth centuries, uh, Christianity gets bottled up into Europe primarily. North Africa ceases to be to be part of that world, which it had been very much so had been. Um, and, uh, the, the church in Ethiopia gets cut off and the churches that are now in places like Egypt and the Levant, Syria, Lebanon, uh, are, are submerged under this kind of overlay of, of Islam. And Islam also takes all the way over to, to the Indus river. So you've got, um, you've got a complete at that point the 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 dynamics of christianity changed significantly and i think then the patristic period really goes up between the first uh, between roughly 100 and the 8th century uh, ad who are maybe a, one or two notable church fathers that you think protestants should get to know maybe maybe one two three of them well they they, they need to get to know a number of them but uh, augustine is critical um for for western thought whether it be Roman Catholic or Protestant, Augustine is is just a major, major figure. We um, he was a voluminous author. He wrote and he ended up writing somewhere between 130 books, of which we have most of them. Um, we know that because he lists his books in a document uh, called Reconsiderations in English, uh, about two years before his death in 428. And we have virtually all of them. We've hmm. and uh, interestingly enough, he. He mentions a couple of early early writings that he did, not long after his conversion, uh, which he even he admits were lost. He didn't have copies of them. He had no idea where they were. So Augustine, um, I think uh, an author like Basil of Caesarea, um, partly because of his spirituality, but especially because of his defense of the deity of the Holy Spirit, Athanasius, uh, because of his defense of the deity of our Lord during that long fourth century in which you have battles over the Trinity. Um, Patrick of Ireland is an intriguing figure because of his missions orientation, very Pauline 
in his mission consciousness. Um, and then Macarius, Simeon, um, who is uh, a monastic mentor who's living on somewhere on the um, Persian, uh, the, the, the border between the Persian and Roman empires. So in modern day Syria. Um, and his spiritual homilies are just an incredible uh, boon uh, to Western spirituality. So uh, there's a number of fathers there. Um, there's others whom one could list, but you you indicated a few. So, can you talk about some of the early doctrines? I mean, when you talk with people who are thinking about Catholicism or Eastern Orthodox, they'll point back and say everybody believed in something like baptismal regeneration or something like that. Um, maybe start with how did the theology of sacraments develop in the early church? What was that like? What were they talking about? How do they think about the Lord's Supper and baptism in those early patristic times? Well, first of all, I think what's important is the kind of following rule, which I learned from um, Ligon Duncan. I, I heard Ligon Duncan give a, an address at a Together for the Gospel um, um, conference, probably eight, maybe 10 years ago, in which it was, on, it was the conference was based on justification. So it was probably around 2016, maybe 2017. Um, and Ligon gave an address on um, justification in the Church Fathers. And he prefaced his discussion with the following comment that the, the, the areas where the church fathers wrestled in controversy, generally speaking, are areas where we can find them very helpful. Areas that were not controversial for the fathers, we have a kind of a variety of opinions and perspectives and um, about an issue. Um, and um, they may or may not be helpful. And in other words, it's it's controversy that brings things into sharp focus. And to be honest, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper aren't aren't issues of controversy in the in the patristic period. They become controversial in the ninth century when there are debates in the Carolingian Church about the uh, presence of Christ at the table, and they become debates obviously in the in the sixteenth century with on the one hand the Anabaptists. Uh, rejecting uh, infant baptism, and on the other hand, uh, the the inability of the reformers like Calvin and uh, Zwingli to come to an agreement regarding the presence of Christ at the table. So what you find in the early years is an array of opinions. I think what is essential is to, to recognize is that there would have been a, a broad agreement that conversion entails three things. Conversion entails the gift of the of the, the the spirit. It entails the step of faith, but it also entails public public declaration of what has happened in terms of the gifts of the spirit and the step of faith in the waters of baptism. And baptism is by and large immersion um, of a believer. And um, you, of course, you can find exceptions to that. Uh, Cyprian notes. Uh, the the area of infant baptism, uh, Gregory Nazianzus writes against it. Tertullian writes against it. Augustine defends it, uh, but it wasn't a controversy, and so you don't have a highly articulate 
a the, baptismal theology, and likewise with the table. Uh, even there was even less discussion about the table. Um, an author like Ignatius of Antioch can talk about the the table being the medicine of immortality. When a early modern Roman Catholic author looks back at that, oh well, it's obvious he believes in transubstantiation and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Well, no. Um, he's using metaphor. He's using imagery. Um, he's talking about what the Lord's table is designed to do as a means of grace, namely keep us on the straight or narrow, um, enable us to persevere as disciples. And in that sense, lead, it, lead, its regular participation at the table will be integral to the pathway of discipleship. But uh that this is a, that that this is meant to be a literal eating of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, there's no there's no necessarily indication of that. Um, the metaphor, the phraseology, can be a metaphor or it could be literal. Um, but the literal emphasis only begins in the High Middle Ages when you get the use of Aristotelian metaphysics to describe the presence of Christ at the table. Um, so, I mean, I could take you to Baptist authors in the 17th century and 18th century who can talk about eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. Hmm. And they don't explain that this is a metaphor. They just said, I mean, I, there's a diary of a man named Isaac Stavely, mid 1700s. And he, in his diary, he notes, we came around, we came around the table of our Lord last Sunday uh, to eat the body of our Lord and drink his blood. And um, if you didn't know better, if I just gave you that out of context, oh, he, he's got to be a Roman Catholic. No, he's not. He's a, he's a Calvinistic Baptist. So the use of metaphor is very, very important. And especially when you don't have the surrounding arguments of in the fourth century of the doctrine of transubstantiation. But once you get the doctrine of trans, transubstantiation, then these authors who defend it can look back and say, oh, yeah, Ignatius is with us. Uh, see what he says. The, the 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 table is the medicine of immortality. But as I said, that that's a reading, that's anachronism, historical anachronistic thinking. Um, I think illustrated. So they weren't they didn't have a controversy over baptism of the Lord's Supper, so they weren't clarifying it in the terms that later Correct. generations did, and it would be a fallacy to read back in the clarified statements of later generations back into the early times when they didn't have the language to describe it or they Correct. didn't have a need to articulate it. Um, what, what, let's talk about baptism a little bit too. Um, you know, depending on, even when you're talking to a Presbyterian, oftentimes they'll say, you know, it was the universal practice of the church. You know, it was, it was happening very early. Um, now. Are we talking here about infant baptism? Yes. Infant baptism. You know, now. Well, it's not the, yeah, it's not the universal practice of the church. In fact, it's, it's it's a minority view uh, down to the early fifth century. It's only when you move outside the Roman world uh, in Western Europe and you get a rise of biblical illiteracy um, and a loss of contact with the text of Scripture, and you get the influence of Augustine, who argued for infant baptism on the ba on the basis of the fact that it deals with the stigma of original sin. For if a child in Augustine's theology dies without baptism. Uh, the child would go to hell because it's stained with the, with the original sin. 
And so baptism, infant baptism for Augustine becomes a becomes an answer to a critical problem, which is what happens to young babies when they die. And infant baptism is designed to secure their salvation. But prior to Augustine, people weren't articulating in that manner? No, no. I mean, uh, Cyprian talks about it. I think Cyprian is in favor of infant baptism. His predecessor, Tertullian, um, who Cyprian calls the master, was against infant baptism. Gregory Nazianzus is against infant baptism. Uh, most of the major theologians of the fourth century are, are not baptized as infants, even if they grew up in Christian homes. Basil, Gregory Nyssa, Gregory Nazianzus all grew up in Christian homes, but none is baptized as an infant. Now, did they view baptism as, uh, well, I guess what we would call baptismal regeneration? Well, as I said, that that's a question. It's almost impossible to answer. Hmm. In, well, it's not impossible to answer. For, so, for instance, in, in Cyprian's letter to Donatus, written three, 246, roughly, um, in the third and fourth chapters, he talks about the the saving waters of regeneration or the the bath of regeneration. So if I believe that the act of baptism in and of itself, once it's, as it were, those waters have been consecrated, that they they in and of themselves produce regeneration. Um, I look back at this text and I say, oh, well, that's obvious what he believes. Well, it's not obvious at all. Um, if you look at it in context and you look at it in the fact that, number one, he's taking word, he's taking phraseology from uh, Titus 3. Number two, for Cyprian, as for anybody in that day, um, valid baptism was coupled with uh, three, definitely two other things. One is the gift of the Spirit and the third, secondly, the, the step of faith. And also, he will argue, a valid baptism is also linked to to the fact that it takes place in a church setting where the ruling teaching elder is in communion with the majority of bishops who would be in communion with, with him uh, at Carthage. So it's far more complex than the the... Simple medieval, okay, we baptize you as an infant. Um, the proper words are said over you. You're, you're now regenerate. Um, it's, it's part of a lot. It's, it's part, baptism for Cyprian, for example, is, 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 is part of a, a larger package uh, of, of salvation. There are, at one point, he says, if you come to the water without faith, it does you no good. Well, how does he affirm infant baptism then, if he believes that? That's a good question, and I think he's inconsistent. Okay, <laughs> there you have it. Now, you mentioned a little bit about a bishop, and that's something I'm curious about, uh, the development of polity. Can you describe what that was like in the early church? I mean, you you have like first and second Clement that talks about it seems to be bishops, something like that, or you have a lot of claims to an episcopacy early on, but then there's Presbyterians would argue differently. How, how do we, can you help us make sense of the early church and their view of, of, of polity and authority in the church? Yeah, so um, in the New Testament, it's quite clear that the 
the air the the apostles set up congregations with two offices elders and deacons philippians 1 1 uh the term episkopos which we get bishop from and the term presbyteros elder are synonymous you just have to look at acts 20 where they're used synonymously uh, uh, titus 3 uh, uh, titus 1 uh first timothy 3 um, by the second century, though, you have authors like Ignatius of Antioch, who's very early, um, arguing that there is one one of the elders who is to be appropriately designated the episcopos, uh, the bishop. Um, he has, uh, Ignatius, writing somewhere around 110, has seven letters, genuine letters, five of them to churches, sorry, six of them to churches. Um, and of those six, five of them address a bishop. So when he writes to the church at Ephesus, he addresses the bishop, uh, a man named Onesimus. So one has to assume that Episcopal structure has emerged, but it's a very simple Episcopal structure. It's the, the, the bishop in the early church could be nothing more than the senior pastor of what, what is today, or a pastor of a congregation today. So Augustine is the Bishop of Hippo, for instance, in the 4th century, 5th century. Um, but that church of Hippo might have 800 people, if that. It's very different, say, from Cyril of Alexandria, who is Augustine's younger contemporary, who is the Bishop of Alexandria, and he probably has anywhere from 50 to 60 churches under his charge. So mm -hmm. he, he, he looks much more like a contemporary bishop than Augustine does. Um, the, the whole concept of bishop develops, I think, for a number of reasons. One of them is the hierarchicalism of the Roman Empire. Uh, a second is as a um, as a, a preventative measure against heresy. If if the teaching is the hand is in the hands of one orthodox man, then the the stability and integrity of the pulpit can be secured. Um, First Clement is an interesting text because Clement is very clearly the secretary of the board of elders at Rome. By the way, it is interesting that the when when Ignatius writes to the church at Rome, he does not mention a bishop by name. Hmm. And I think because there is no one bishop at that point, uh, other churches may have gravitated towards a one elder being somehow the elder and thus the bishop. Um, but Rome is about 50 house churches. And I don't think there, and I think the failure of Ignatius or the silence is a better word of Ignatius about the Bishop of Rome is based on the fact that there was no person who was recognized as the elder of Rome who spoke for all those house churches. And I think Clement also illustrates another reason for the development of the episcopacy, which is that the, the, um, the writing back and forth from church to church, often you have to send a letter somewhere. And the church has to respond when a letter is received. Um, and, and frequently this, I think, gravitated towards one individual. Um, he would receive letters from other churches and then convey them to the church. He would correspond on the on the behalf of the church to other churches. And this is this is very clearly Clement's role. He's the hmm. he's this he's the secretary of the board of elders. Um, at uh, at the church in Rome. Um, and another reason I think this is one that's often forgotten is that 
um, integral to the whole Roman social system is the concept of the patron, the patronus. And the patronus was the essential glue of the empire. Um, apart from slaves, uh, everybody really had, you had, really had to have a patron. And you were regarded, you were called a, a, cl a cliens, a client. And um, patrons were invaluable for medical help, for financial help, um, et cetera, et cetera. And one can imagine, though, if you as a client become a Christian and your patron's a pagan, this is going to produce friction. Hmm. And so increasingly, you see bishops, as the, as the office develops in the early church, taking on the role of patrons. They take care of the widows. They take care of the poor in the church, the indigent, um, etc., um, or direct others to do so. So there are a number of reasons for the development of the episcopacy. And again, as I say, the episcopacy has to be understood uh, as being different from town to town. For some, um, it, it's a, they're, they're the single pastor in a church of 400, 500, whatever. Uh, for others, they're the the overseer of a multitude of churches. They're not the bishop of the medieval world, in other words. But they were overseeing multiple, for lack of a better term, congregations. Yeah, some of them do. Some of them, Cyril of Alexandria does, but uh, he's he's in the four hundreds, so he's sure. he's somewhat late. I'm just asking, as as in terms of you know Southern Baptist polity of the autonomy of local churches. How does that square with the early church? There seemingly was more, you, you have a body of elders over multiple churches. Well, yeah, even interestingly enough, in, in the in the SBC, you're starting to get some of this, right? Um, Sojourn in, in Louisville, you know, there's probably three or four churches. Nine yeah. um, Marks with an author like Jonathan Lehman has argued strenuously against uh, churches with, um, you know, one senior pastor who then is videoed into uh, numerous other locations. But that's going on. Well, that, that just looks like the bishop in the early church to, to me. Um, and the reality is that, well, first of all, two realities in the early about the early church. Number one is the the emphasis on the geographical unity of the church, the, the linkages between the churches. I mean, it's very obvious that Paul, Paul as an apostle, sees the churches as wa walking together, as united together, as working together. And in fact, the earliest Baptists in the 17th and 18th century in Britain uh, were very big on associations. And then secondly, um, whether or not you have a person called the bishop, in name, surely what we see today around North America is bishops in in independent evangelical circles, so to so called. Um, a guy like John MacArthur, he's a bishop. Uh, yeah, yeah, he'd be a heart attack if he heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he <laughs> people have called him a pope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he functions well. I I, I think that's a, a that's a negative term, pope. Bishop has a little, little more yeah. neutrality, but yeah. he functions as a bishop. Martin Lloyd Jones did. If you look at Lloyd Jones's relationship to uh, independent evangelical churches in the UK in the '60s and '70s, especially after he retired from Westminster in '68, 
Um, he would he would go to various geographical locales in the country. He they would be annual visits, and a dozen, twenty, thirty men would come from local churches, and they basically listen to Lloyd Jones uh, teach. I mean, really rich teaching. But he's functioning as a bishop. I mean, one of the challenges of English evangelicalism has been since the death of Lloyd-Jones in 81, um, the schism that took place between him and J.I. Packer on the J.I. Packer and John Stott on the one hand and himself on the other, that, that has never fully been healed hmm. and has bedeviled uh, English evangelicalism. Um, and the loyalty to Lloyd-Jones, which, I mean, I... I love Lloyd Jones, but I think he functions as a bishop um, in praxis, whether certainly not in name, but in praxis. And in North America, you know, John Piper, R.C. Sproul, um, et cetera, et cetera. That's a good point. But, but I mean, these characters, though, they don't have ecclesiastical authority, though. And it seems like did Cyprian possess that? Did, you know, did did Clement assume that these elders had kind of authority over multiple congregations? Uh, excommunication. Well, Cyprian, Cyprian is is the the uh, the pastor of the is the bishop of the church in Carthage. You might have had three or four congregations there at that point in time. Um, again, that's out of necessity because of persecution and Christians couldn't own use public buildings. Hmm. And yes, they do have ecclesiastical authority, but um, I mean, I'm I'm quite certain. If, well, you know, you you think about it, it was done in jest, but it, you know what what um, when John MacArthur, you know, the question was raised about Beth Moore. Oh yeah, you know, and um, so if you are if you are sitting there and uh, you had invited Beth Moore to come and address your women uh, that year following, you probably would think twice. You know, if it, if it gets back to Dr. MacArthur, I, we had Beth Moore into our church. Maybe I wouldn't be welcome at our gatherings. Hmm. I, I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm speculating. I, I, I'm just saying. You know, there there is ecclesiastical there is a th- ecclesiastical authority, and there's ecclesiastical authority. There hmm. is the kind of that which is clear and demarcated. But there's no doubt in my mind if John MacArthur labels somebody as a heretic. Uh, you're going to be very reticent to to fellowship with them. So a lot of this is, you know, that even if we don't have the hard and fast definitions, people function in that way. Yes. And, and, and probably yes. was like that in the early church, more of a functional type of thing. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. I suppose, yeah. too. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you do have the nomenclature there in the early church, but I think there's also the functionality and then once you get the rise of the monastic movement well then you get monastic leaders like antony mm. yeah who isn't a bishop but he comes into he comes into alexandria at some point and denounces the arians you know and uh so this very holy man uh, a charismatic figure in the broad sense of the term he had enormous authority hmm interesting when we talk about the church fathers, um, what do you find are common misconceptions about them that Protestants may have? Well, I, I think one of the things is, is as you said right at the beginning, they, that, they, that they all belong to the Roman church. I still remember being invited uh, to speak at a church in here in southern Ontario. And, uh, 
I, I, I still do, but I, I used to do a lot more. Uh, these kind of one-day conferences, I, on a Saturday morning, I would go and do three talks, two talks, lunch, maybe a talk after lunch, whatever, um, on church history. And I remember being invited, and I, I sent back the, for the three topics. I said, I, I, I'm going to give a lecture on, it'll be basically focused on North African Christianity. We'll start with Perpetua, the martyr, and then Cyprian, and then Augustine. And the pastor got back to me, and he said, I, I tried it with the elders, and um, we've, we've never heard of two of those people. And the other guy was, the other one was a Catholic, right? <laughs> and or uh, I won't name the organization, a very well-known organization. And um, they asked me to speak on two two topics, and I suggested two talks on the letters of Diognetus, which is just a gem of an apology. Hmm. And they came back to me and they said, well, yeah, but we'd really like something Reformation and after. Hmm. And again, I think there is this, this presupposition that everything prior to 1500 belongs to the Roman church. So hmm. that's a, I think that's a major issue. Um, I think the other thing is the problem of language. I think, for many, uh, the fathers don't speak like us. I mean, the two most difficult areas to teach from a church historian's point of view about the history of the church is the patristic world and the medieval world. Hmm. And with the patristic world, it's got to do, a lot of it's got to do with language. And they, they don't sound like evangelicals. Oh, they're not in evangelicals in one sense. And so that I think, I think, I think the appreciation of the church fathers takes just takes time. You know, um, I think you need to read them. Um, it's almost like certain foods. You know, the appreciation of a certain food takes time if you've not encountered it before. Um, and I think the same is true with the fathers. Um, you you need you need to have somebody help you walk through them. And to point out how these men can be enormously helpful, their writings. Um, and you have some idea as to how they speak. Because it's a it, it, it's a different language. It's not simply because it's in Greek and Latin, but it's a different language theologically than we use often. I've heard some Roman Catholics point to the Church Fathers and say that they viewed themselves as able to define dogma and doctrine. And it's sort of a, a backhanded way of saying that they didn't hold to something like sola scriptura. Obviously, they didn't speak in those terms. But what was their vision of church authority in relation to scripture's authority? Were they able to say, we can define what dogma is for the church? Um, how do they understand scripture in relation? Well, to I mean, church councils define positions um, in terms of you know, uh, like the Council of Nicaea defining, you know, the, the the who is our Lord Jesus Christ. But the argument is based on Scripture. Um, well, what is amazing is if, again, I, I'm always amazed at people who say things like, you know, the fathers, uh, this is another, I think, problem for people reading the fathers. Oh, yeah, the fathers are, are driven by philosophy. And uh, one of the greatest church historians of the 20th century Adolf von Harnack is is actually responsible for this. He argues that once once the gospel moves outside of an Hebraic Jewish Christian context, it gets Hellenized. It gets hmm. it gets subsumed by Greco-Roman culture. 
Well, he's actually, I think he's dead wrong. He, even though he was a brilliant church historian, knew more about the early church than I do, but I think he was dead. I think he's dead wrong. I think the opposite happens. I think a Greco-Roman culture becomes Christianized. Mm. And if you read the fathers, and I'm thinking here of Basil of Caesarea's on the Holy Spirit, it, it it's filled with scripture. He's he's not arguing from a philosophical, I mean, he has philosophical elements, but he's arguing from scripture. Um, Augustine's uh, defense of the the depravity of humanity in it uh, as a consequence of the fall over against Pelagius. It's scripture he's using again and again and again. And the great battles in the early church uh, against the Gnostics in the second century um, who deny the reality, the incarnation, the resurrection, and uh, the goodness of the material realm. Um, the Arians in the fourth century, uh, the Pelagians in the fifth century, these, these great battles um, are all about scripture. So the fathers in their praxis uh, are committed to sola scriptura. Scripture has the ultimate authority. But I've heard some say that, you know, I don't know if it's Ignatius or Irenaeus, one of the I guys, they would appeal to the their uh, connection to the apostles or connection to a bishop, that they, they would appeal to church hierarchy in order to make definitive stances on dogmas. Um, well, yeah, they do uh, in the second century. And you would too. If uh, if you've got a Gnostic arguing, no, um, my my views come down from the apostles by a secret tradition. And you're arguing against that. Uh, you use scripture, which Irenaeus does, for example. But Irenaeus was, Irenaeus was mentored by Polycarp, who was mentored by the apostle John. And I'm quite certain you would make that kind of personal connection too. He, he does argue. Well, it's curious he'll say to the Gnostics that you're arguing thus because what I was told by Polycarp, who got it from John, it exactly accords with Holy Scripture. And I think I would make the, the, the that becomes a problem when you move into the fourth and fifth centuries and you're still arguing that way because by that point you've got a, a development of time in which the traditions can become distorted. But I think I think in the second century it makes a lot of sense to argue that way. That's helpful. Understanding right then it's it's still you were you were only in a few generations where you can have that kind of you know yeah. testimony. But as it goes further out, and even then, I guess you would say that tradition's important, specifically for that example that you mentioned. But especially as you get further and further from the sources, scripture is has always been that final kind of arbiter. Of yeah, I mean, like, like, for instance, as I said, in in, in Basil of Caesarea's defense of the deity of the spirit, um, he's got 30 chapters, um, 21 or 22 of them are scripture, and one of them is tradition. Hmm. One, so you know, you, you just have to look at the weight of argument and the way in which they use the scriptures and the enormous amount of 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 weight that they put on the scriptures to recognize that the, for these men, Holy Scripture is the final authority. Well, there's a lot of debates about scriptures in the modern day, about and, and and even just there's a lot of theological doctrinal issues. How can we, uh, how can understanding the church fathers help us as contemporary Christians navigate theological and doctrinal issues today? 
what can we learn from the way they thought and the way they worked that could influence? Well, I think I think uh, obviously some of their arguments for issues that are still uh, vital for us. I mean, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Athanasius's defense of the incarnation and the reality of the incarnation is still very helpful. His methodology, the text he uses, the way he argues for them. The the fact that the fathers, when they're confronted with the Arians, the Arians have got their verses. You know, the father is greater than I. Um, where Jesus says of that, of the second coming, no man knows, not even the son. So the Arians would tr- trot these out. And uh, Athanasius will respond to various uh, passages to put them in context. But overall, he'll argue also that the, the Arian position fails to do justice to the to the main tenor of the Bible, well, what he calls the skopos, S-K-O-P-O-S, the, the, the main scope of the scriptures. Um, the New Testament is riddled, if we wanted to do that. I'm not sure that's the appropriate word. Um, it is infused completely with the deity of Christ. And so to reject the deity of Christ um, on the basis of this three or four verses fails to recognize that the entire New Testament is predicated on the fact that the anointed one of God, the Messiah, is God himself. So uh, the methodology of argument is is enormously helpful. Um, the fathers give us two two or three great gifts, one of which is the 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 doctrine of the Trinity. And um the we had a brouhaha a few years ago online and in person about the Trinity in evangelical circles. And some of the things that were said at that time, I remember speaking to some of the people participants in that debate and asking them, when was the last time you read any of the fathers? Hmm. And was not surprised in some ways that I was told, well, you know, I read them in, in seminary. Um and the realization that, you know, where some evangelicals are trying to reinvent the wheel. Right. Um, so that's certainly what, uh, where the fathers have debates, like the Doctrine of Trinity, Christology. Um, they're enormously helpful. Uh, the canon. They, they give us the canon. Um, now, those that discussion is reopened at the time of the reformation regarding the apocrypha but essentially the canon is is a product of the new t- of the of the of the apostolic era they don't invent the canon they recognize it um so those are i mean and and that that's very interesting because i think in, in the the study of the history of the canon um evangelicals have been very slow to be involved in that you would think that given our love for scripture textual criticism and the discussion of the canon would be high on our agenda, but they're not. They're not areas that evangelicals have tended to specialize. That's why I'm very thankful in the canon for somebody like Michael Kruger, who's done some fabulous work in this area. Did the early church fathers, did they accept the Apocrypha? The early fathers will sometimes use the Apocrypha. Uh, There are debates among them. uh, well, the one debate that I really am very aware of is the one with Augustine and Jerome, and Jerome insisting the Apocrypha are not canonical. Um, Augustine, in probably one of the areas where uh, where he is wrong, um, insisting they are, the, the Apocrypha is canonical. 
Um, the early church will use the Apocrypha. They don't, they don't recognize it as canonical. Um, I'm thinking here of Athanasius's Easter letter of 367. Uh, even the Council of Carthage, interestingly enough, despite Augustine's arguments with Jerome, uh, the Council of Carthage um, in the 390s would recognize our canon uh, as that, that, that's what's canonical. Interesting. So going along with modern application, are there some practices that the church fathers had or or ways in which they lived that, that the modern church could benefit from today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think some of the monastic uh, elements, um, there are great emphasis on prayer. I, th- I think the fact that all of the fathers would emphasize this, that uh, holiness of life is what equips a man to be a theologian. Hmm. Uh, that's true from Origen all the way through to Gregory Nazianzus. Uh, Gregory Nazianzus is Oration 2, in which he talks about a pastor and what it means to be a pastor and a theologian. Um, the idea that a person like, say, Paul Tillich, who spent a lot of his time praying, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, not hmm. P-R-A-Y-I-N-G, upon female students. Um, that disqualifies him completely. Hmm. Um, it raises questions about Karl Barth. Yeah. You know, um, living with uh, Christine von Kirschbaum. Um, so that's, I think, a very, very important area that we can learn from the fathers, um, uh, their commitment to, to prayer and to holiness of life. What's the deal with origin? I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this, uh, but uh, I am kind of curious because origin is sort of, he's such a large figure in church history. And yet, he, you know, he's got some weird views. How should a Protestant approach origin? Um, I actually like Origen, um, and I like him for a number of reasons. One is uh, the whole doctrine of eternal generation. He's very important in the development of that, of the Son. Um, I like him because um, he is committed in his own mind to being orthodox. Um, And I think he demonstrates by his being a confessor of the faith, being tortured. Um, his determination to die for Christ. Um, yes, he has some problems. Um, his allegorization was problematic for some of the Protestant reformers. Um, though, interestingly enough, all the Protestant reformers would have agreed of origin that the Song of Solomon is obviously about Christ and the church. Hmm. Um, but origin's allegorization is always is always on the basis of is treating the historicity of a text seriously. And it's only when he comes to the conviction the text cannot mean what it literally says in a historical sense that he resorts to allegorization. Um, there are rumors in his day that he believed in the salvation of the devil. He actually has a letter in which he rejects those rumors. Oh, interesting. Um, and, but he get he gets castigated in the late fourth century, the first originist controversy, and then Justinian really does his does does him in, hmm. um, in the sixth century, um, and his works are are denounced as heretical. Um, 
much of my admiration for Origen is drawn from the fact that the Cappadocian fathers, Basil and Gregory and Issa, who I think are solid theologically, loved him, mm. even though they knew, and they they mentioned Basil mentions this. Uh, you know, Origen's not always right in his terminology, but they 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 recognize the value of his writings, and I think I think we need to read Origen the way, say, the Cappadocians read uh, uh, read him. Just as I think we need to read the fathers the way the reformers read the fathers, as as conversation partners, senior colleagues, who can help us, but who are not infallible. Now, was that a common perspective from the, the fathers that they viewed the the Bible as historical? They viewed the historicity. I'm thinking about in the Old Testament, they would have said, you know, even though there might be some spiritual or allegorical meaning, this is history. I think Origen is typical here. I think Origen, uh, as I said, when he, it's only when he feels that the a text cannot be understood literally does he resort to allegorization. But the the attack on allegorization in Protestant circles has to be recognized. I mean, a lot of people in in our day, oh yeah, you know, the the literal meaning of scripture. Well, n- nobody from <laughs> Hippolytus of Rome, down to Spurgeon, read Song of Solomon literally. Hmm. When uh, Pierre Caroli, I think it's Caroli, in in uh, in Geneva, said to Calvin, "I think it's just a love song," and began teaching it, uh, Calvin kicked him out of the city. Hmm. And here's Calvin, who doesn't like allegorization. Uh, somebody needs to do a, a study of Calvin on the Song of Songs, and I think it'd be very surprising. Hmm. Interesting. Maybe as we're drawn to a close, um, you know, what would what advice would you give to somebody who's interested in exploring the Church Fathers for the first time? You mentioned. Um, I think you need to read uh, some of them. The primary sources. Uh, there are some very helpful secondary sources, but primary sources. Just get into the fathers. Start just start reading them. Um, Augustine's Confessions is probably the best place to start. Uh, Patrick of Ireland, his Confession, uh, the Letter to Diognetus, Macarius's Homilies, his Spiritual Homilies, um, Basil of Caesarea's On the Holy Spirit. But yeah, I mean, read read the fathers firsthand. And then there are uh, some books. Uh, Brian Litvin has a book uh, similar to mine on uh, the study of the fathers. Uh, I have my rediscovering the church fathers. So these can these can be helpful in giving you kind of overall overarching guidelines. But I I think in any area, you know, if if somebody said to me, you know, how, how can I learn to read the Bible? Well, read the Bible. You know, don't just read secondary books about the Bible. You just easy easy to get into the reading the Bible, and likewise here, you, you need to read the fathers. We go on a broader scale for Protestants in general. What do you hope a book like yours, rediscovering the Church Fathers, and just you know a, a greater appreciation for the fathers? What do you hope that'll do for for Protestants in general? Well, I, I hope it'll give us balance, um, grounding the doctrine of the Trinity, which quote unquote, we've rediscovered, so to speak. I mean, you go back 50 years, nobody's talking about the Trinity in evangelical circles. And suddenly now we're talking about the Trinity. And some of the rubbish, I'll be honest, it's it's 
it's it's amazing some of the things that are said, and they wouldn't be said if people had read Nazianzen or, or Augustine. So some of the some of the things that we should be able to avoid would that the fathers would help us avoid them. Um, and the fathers will then also force, force us to recognize the the Catholicity of the church. Hmm. Um, evangelicals aren't the only Christians. Hmm. It's, a, it's a helpful word. Uh, Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this is a really enlightening conversation. I appreciate uh, your work in this area. And I think, uh, you know, as a Protestant and many people listening to Protestants, it's it's refreshing to hear that uh, you can, in fact, read church history and remain Protestant. And you can appreciate uh, the, the forefathers of the faith. But I appreciate you coming on. Thanks for thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you appreciated this episode, make sure you leave a review. You can uh, follow us on Instagram as well at That'll Preach Podcast. Uh, feel free to uh, share this episode. If there's anyone uh, that's that's really diving into church history, share this episode. Tell them about it, and uh, make sure you subscribe. Appreciate you guys listening in, and uh, make sure you check out our new website, battlepreach.io, and get all the updated episodes there as well. And we will see you guys next week.